This is a MacKillop Farm Management Group podcast. We acknowledge and respect the traditional owners of the ancestral lands, Potterwich to the north, Jawajali to the east, Bowendick to the south and Mitung to the west of the Limestone Coast region. We acknowledge Elders past and present and we respect the deep feelings of attachment and relationship of Aboriginal peoples to country. Welcome to The Prosperous Farmer, a podcast telling the stories of farmers in the Limestone Coast and Western Victoria. Today's episode is part one of a two-part series looking at the high-yielding crops and grain legume production projects funded by GRDC. I'm Meg Bell, and today I'm chatting to Serial Research and Extension Agronomist and Fire Australia Managing Director, Nick Poole. Welcome, Nick. Thanks for being here. Nick is the project leader of the GRDC High-Yielding Crops Project, a national initiative striving to push crop yield boundaries in high-yield potential grain-growing environments. Far Australia, working in conjunction with the University of Adelaide, are also delivering the high rainfall zone component of the Grain Legume Production Project, which delivers local development and extension to close the economic yield gap and maximise farming systems benefits from grain legume production. Nick, starting out with the high yielding crops cereals component, can you give us a bit of an overview of this GRDC project? It's a project that's just entering its final year. It's been taking place all across southern Australia, principally in the high rainfall zone from the west over at Franklin River in the Albany port zone, right through to a high altitude site in southern New South Wales, up at 500 metres near Wallenbeen, and then south in the in the long season high rainfall zone uh, regions i suppose you could say the mckillop region down at millicent nawari just outside of geelong and then finally down to tasmania so it genuinely is a national project that is effectively challenged with lifting the productivity in those higher yielding zones why focus on this quest for hyper yielding or higher yielding crops nick there's two angles to that. It's very easy to think of uh, Australia as this sort of more arid environment where high yields aren't possible. And for the majority of the acreage, we know that our average yield is just less than two tonne a hectare of wheat. But there are actually regions where we can do many times better than that. And some of these high rainfall zones, our problem very often is not lack of water, it's actually too much water and water logging as a, as a consequence. So these higher yielding areas by virtue of uh, higher rainfall have their own unique challenges, have a need for management techniques and germplasm that is totally different to the grain belt of Australia. So why focus on it? Because perhaps it is so different, but the rewards can be so great because the yield potential is higher. It's pretty amazing when we're kind of hearing those reports of crops doing 10 tonne and more, isn't it? You know, that's such a novelty to us here. It is, but, you know, we only have to go back 20 years and in the high rainfall zone we thought that five and six ton a hectare were good crops and they were at that time but what we've since realized is that with different germplasm some of it from overseas newer more effective disease management control products we've actually managed to lift that potential such that 10 tonne a hectare is no longer a pipe dream. It's yeah. a reality. And as you'd expect with any group of growers and advisors, they're now saying, well, is our environment capable of 12 tonne? Because we think we can do 10 tonne. And we can't do it all of the time, but we certainly know 10 tonne crops are a reality in some of our high rainfall zone yeah, it's pretty amazing. Nick, tell us a bit about the activities that the, the High Building Crops Project has included and I, I guess more specifically about where those types of activities have occurred. Have they been different across all of those trial sites that you mentioned at the start? 
Well, I think the I think the great thing about hyper yielding is actually to recognise that it's a project that not only does research in a small plot way, but actually aims to scale that up such that we take the knowledge from the small plots or take the knowledge from the farm to put into the small plots, and then we scale up. And hyper-yielding crops has these three elements that all link together. So small plot research through to innovation groups that are looking at tramline experiments or focus paddocks where we say, well, you know, we saw that in a small plot, but will it work on our farm? That combined with what we've termed the HYC awards, which is an agronomic benchmarking anonymous within a group that lets you know what your crop parameters were. This has been done many times with economics, but not so often with agronomics. And so the whole basis of the project has been to try and get adoption from the work that we're putting in place. And therefore, it's involved research organisations, the likes of John Kierkegaard from CIRO, looking at aspects of yield potential with us and how best to try and predict yield potential in these zones on farm for things such as the HYC awards. It's involved farming groups. MacKillop, obviously, with their project officer, Jen Lillicrap, who's been a superb project officer for HYC. But I think that's the thing that's the success of it, is keeping all of that together and having the feedback loops such that if something's not working in the field or somebody's got a new ideal from the field that they need to feed into the small plot, we can give it some science rigour and say that's real or it's not real and scale up so we get much earlier adoption and hopefully built in much higher productivity sooner. Nick, you, you touched a little bit on it before, but can you tell us a bit more about who else has been involved with the project? Well, like I say, MacKillop starting locally. MacKillop has been the group that have provided the project officer in the shape of Jen Lillicrap. She's driven in that region two innovation groups, one slightly further north, one further south. But that's multiplied across the country. So you have Stirlings to Coast doing the equivalent with Dan Fay over in the Albany port zone. You've got Southern Farming Systems who are involved in two states, both Tasmania and Victoria, doing the same thing with Ashley and Jill. And then up into just north of the border with Riverine Plains and Cape Coffee providing the project officer there. So the farming groups are a key component. But we've also looked to try and include other facets in terms of research. So in HYC, we actually have engaged Rowan Brill from Brill Ag, who many will know for his knowledge in canola, to lead our canola research. And we've the likes of John Kierkegaard in terms of, like I say, not only running some focus farms up in that southern New South Wales region, but also working on this aspect of yield potential. How do we estimate it in the HRZ? Tech Crop, John Midwood's organisation in terms of looking at that oversight of the project officers. Until last year, deep, deeper, but their uh, lead researcher, Jeremy Curry, has gone on to do his PhD. So state departments being involved, CSIRO, you can see that actually it's a, a multidisciplinary, if I may call it that, project with different expert skills in different parts of the project. Obviously, our own organisation, Far Australia, with some of those operational responsibilities across all of those regions, working with our partnering collaborators. The projects run multiple trials, Nick. Can you tell us a bit about the cereal and canola trials that you ran last year in Millicent? Yes. I think 
the first thing about hyperunion, and again, I believe one of the facets of why it's been so successful, is that it's not tightly prescribed as being one element within growing high-yielding crops. It's enabled us to look broadly through all of the spheres of agronomy and germplasm to put the whole package together. We've spent and invested quite a lot of time in screening material, germplasm varieties of wheat, barley, canola that might be suitable for these higher yielding zones. And this is not in any way competing with the likes of NVT, for example, but it's acknowledging that we are in the minority of land area and it also is that our particular regions sometimes benefit from looking at germplasm from outside of Australia. And therefore, we've actually found that a lot of European, perhaps French, wheats in particular, have had a niche at our latitude here in the high rainfall zone of Australia. So germplasm screening, making sure it's got the disease package and a lot of them have got very good disease packages making sure that it 10 and 11 tons a hectare it stands for us come harvest making sure that it's got the right internal time clock or phenology as we call it in research you know that it's got the right season length to work at millicent or to work at nawari that's been the starting point for our pipeline of trials that then run into just how much fertilizer does 12 ton a hectare crop or if we're in Tasmania last year in 2021 we were looking at 15 ton crops so what's the nutrition requirements and we've had some interesting results there that perhaps might be surprising how do we keep disease out of these crops how do we keep them standing if they haven't got that complete package of standing power? And one of the varieties that's taken off in your own region has been the feed wheat acroc, which we know has a weakness around standing power. And what's actually happened is the growers have become more confident and saying, yes, I, we can keep that crop standing because there's other facets of that variety that in the past have worked for them beginning to change though because unfortunately a crop's becoming much more disease susceptible so it's that total ability to look at all of the levers that make high yields up including rotation position can you tell us nick a little bit more about what have been some of the results and highlights from some of the trials this year 2022 was disappointing for us in many respects following 2021. 2021 was definitely our highlight year. We had the highest yields we've ever produced in the hyper-yielding crops project produced at Millicent. We were blown away with the productivity at the Millicent site in 2021. And what we got in 2022 was we thought we were heading for exactly the same kind of high yields. And we had, for want of a better description, almost apocalyptic weather conditions during the flowering and grain fill period for many of our cereal crops, perhaps less so for the canolas, but the canolas were definitely back in 2022 compared to the results from 2021. But I think set against that is one of the things that's really shone through in 2022 is we're beginning to see trends appearing that explain why we're getting the results we do. And there's two things from 2022 that stand out. The first is that we probably didn't have the yield potential in the first place because the period of conditions of solar radiation and temperature 
leading up to the flowering of our principal wheat crops was not as conducive as it was in 2021. We know that this three to four weeks before flowering has been important to set the number of grain sites that we then go on to grain fill. So from a yield potential position, what it gives us is grain number. And we know that wasn't as good. It was actually average temperatures through much, much of that period, but just didn't have the solar radiation that we've had previously. So what we call our photothermal quotient in that critical period was down in 2022. Having said we didn't have as much potential, we were then having to contend with disease at a level that we have not seen before. So apocalyptic weather led to apocalyptic levels of disease. And this wasn't now just in the high rainfall zone. This is throughout the grain belt in many parts of the country. So less potential and then much more difficult to protect that uh, potential. One of the things, though, with the Millicent trials that we were finding was that the grain had actually set. It wasn't grain site sterility. We actually had the grain set. But what we think has happened is that anaerobic conditions in the soil, and we've seen this in southern Victoria, it was so wet during grain fill that crops couldn't breathe at the time they were trying to fill the grain. And what we've ended up with is an awful lot of pinched grain. Now, in some cases, people saw disease and fusariums and late head rust affect that as well. But we think that something more fundamental before you got to those diseases was going on. And that was that crops were trying to grain fill in October actually faced with soil conditions that were much, much wetter than they've seen before. And some of the farmers have actually, in the Millicent region, have said that the land that was slightly better drained, that's normally lower yielding, was actually higher yielding. And the stuff, the, those crops that were, should I say, perhaps more in the sumps or the valleys of those areas, were actually the ones that suffered most. So we've learned a huge amount, albeit off of a slightly disappointing year. The canola's perhaps not so much, but at the site in particular, and again, 2021 canola trials, HYC, were some of the highest yielding that we have seen on the mainland, over six tonne a hectare in our, in our plots. What I think that has shown us is that one of the things that we were very despondent about was the appearance of our canola in 2021, and yet it went on to be our highest yield. So we're perhaps not still seeing in our crops of canola what high yield looks like is one of the aspects that I'd point to. But I think there in 2022, yields were back. And we, again, think this is because high rainfall zone, lots of rain, not much sun. Was it an average rainfall year last year, Nick, in our area? Is that, and it was just due to the, I guess, cloud cover that there wasn't as much evaporation? Or is there something else going on? I'm never one for averages because if you put your foot in, your, in the fire and your foot in the fridge, you're about right. Uh, well, <laughs> actually, I think it was more the fact that we had such heavy falls of rain and frequent rain days during a part of the season when we're just wanting it to be settled and cool and sunny. And we didn't get that through large parts of October and November last year. And I think that we did have a lot of rainfall but it's when we had that rainfall that was more important. We often forget about that, don't we? That the timing's <laughs> probably much more important than the total amount. 
We were quite relieved at one stage in July that actually in certain parts of the high rainfall zone, it looked as if we weren't going to get any winter water logging. And as I was saying earlier, the world of water is actually one that very often we have too much, not too little, and it usually falls in the winter. Dry winters are king for yield for us. You mentioned a little bit about how this last year was a really challenging year with disease. Can you tell us a bit about disease management and what you found in the trials? What are some good strategies that growers can use? Are there, are there new findings that, you're, that you've discovered or is there something else that we can be doing to, to help to combat some of those disease issues? I think the first thing is that 2022 was so extreme in terms of disease management. We do have to be careful we don't manage the 2023 crop with the knowledge we gained in 2022. Having said that, though, there were some key things that happened that we can look out for going forward. The first is that those new pathotypes of stripe rust that have sort of come down the east coast and made their way into South Australia are affecting varieties that we've not seen them affect before. And I talked about the feed wheat a crock, which has been a very reliable servant for us in that lower southeast, that high rainfall zone. Perhaps not as suitable once you go to the north of the MacKillop region, but certainly further south, a very popular variety. That variety showed susceptibility to stripe rust in a way we've not seen previously. And I think that one of the things that really stood out to us was that the yields of a crop went down considerably and we were harvesting, would you believe, one tonne a hectare just over of a crop where it had no fungicide in 2022 mm. at Millicent. We've never seen that level of destruction before. And stripe rust and the new pathotypes of stripe rust, I think, bear some responsibility. We've also seen its septoria slip. So the first thing is to say with all disease management, if we can get a high yielding variety that's more disease resistant, it means we use less fungicide. It means that we stop resistance development because we're using less fungicide and we start to engage new germplasm that for, for one of a better word confuses the enemy or confuses the pathogen so we've got some of those newer varieties now beginning to feature in the acreage things like big red annapurna and also rgt cesario those are varieties that are varieties now to look at to avoid having to contend with monstrous levels of disease. I think for those who are growing million wheats where it, there's less option in terms of genetic resistance to go to, then flutriophol, where you saw stripe rust in last year, even if there's a drier aspect or a drier outlook to 2023, flutriophol on the fertilizer, where you're faced with a susceptible or, you know, very susceptible stripe rust variety, I would think was really a, a really important first step because it may be that you have to do less later on because the weather dries and there's a lot of speculation as to whether the second half of 2023, you know, will actually be a drying plane. So you will have protected yourself early from the stripe rust with a product that's still working just as well as it did 20 years ago against stripe rust anyway. So that's the, I think, some really important things around germplasm resistant varieties or more resistant varieties provided they've got the yield the straw strength and all those other things we've talked about they become this is the time to move to them because taking a, a crop which has been popular in the in the southern mckillop region 
is really starting to be more difficult to manage. If you want to carry on with that, then I think flutriophol becomes a starting point for that wheat. And be wary of aspects of if you're grain in graze, be wary of things like withholding periods and such like, because you putting this fungicide up front, you want to be aware of exactly what the consequences are if you're going to graze. But if you're just growing these varieties for yield, then flutriophol on a crock is a very important starting point. And I have to say, and unless the weather starts to become your fungicide, because the best fungicides you can get is dry weather, then really there are three spray timings that you must treat like lines in the sand with wheat. Growth stage 31, growth stage 39, the flag leaf stage, and then as the head comes out, just as it starts to flower. Those are your three target lines in the sand. And look at the disease at those three lines in the sand as to what products you need or what rates you need. And the drier it is between those three lines in the sand, the more you can tailor down. The wetter it is, the more you tailor up. Those are some things that have shown through HYC as giving you really good dollar return. And the reason for it is that they protect what we call the money leaves, which are those top four leaves that act as the solar panels to fill your grain. And of course, the last one, actually the last spray that you put on at head emergence does two jobs. It helps protect the head, but it also gives you a top up in these longer growing seasons on the flag leaf. If it dries and the outlook is very dry, then very often that last spray can either be very, very cheap or you don't have to apply it. So those are a few things, particularly around the wheat. And the same things apply with barley. It's just we've got less option in terms of those resistant varieties with proven pedigrees higher yielding than, say, something like planet. And for those people who are growing planet, as long as you've not experienced issues with, say, something like Sestiva before, Sestiva has still been working very well to prevent early net blotch, which is the Achilles heel of planet barley crops. So those are a few things that we've had three good seasons to pull these disease management packages apart. But like I recap from the beginning, the thing we have to avoid is farming this year's crop with something as apocalyptic as 2022. Taylor on the basis of those lines in the sand, just how the outlook's going, because dry weather cures a lot of the issues with disease. Does the same thing go for the canolas? Was there a, a big disease burden this year in the canolas as well? Well, it, it's funny you should say that, but canola's one of those crops we've always been expecting it to give great responses to disease control. And... It wasn't until 2022 that we started to see some of that come through, but we didn't see it in 2020 and 2021. And it's not to say sclerotinia is not important. It is. It's just our ability to be able to predict when we're going to get a response that's the problem. So canola still, I think, is... We know the timings that we have to go for in order to prevent black leg or aerial black leg or sclerotinia. It's not always so easy to say that we will get that economic response. And I think most growers have been probably fairly pragmatic and said, well, look, if it's $800 a ton, I don't care. We'll do it as an insurance spray. I think it's when the price of the canola drops back that we'll do an awful lot more thinking around do we need to put all of those sprays into the canola. So canola still, 
we've still a little to learn, particularly on this aspect of we can see the disease, we can sometimes see that we've done something for the disease, but we don't always see the economics. 22, we did, but 2020 and 21 was far less economic impact of what we were doing. You mentioned before, Nick, a little bit about our crops being really important for our crops to have the ability to actually stand upright to be able to harvest them. Can you tell me a little bit about canopy management in those cereal crops? How do you do it? What are the best things you've found in the trial site? Well, I think the the first thing, obviously, is the standing power of the, the germplasm you're using. But in terms of canopy management, one of the aspects is that we all plant our crops by seed weight, you know, through the seeder. We calibrate for a particular seed weight. What I would urge the, the, the growers to do is to take always more notice of the seed size. Because if you're presented with a lot of small seed, take 2022, perhaps seed size mightn't be as big. If you plant by seed weight and you make no adjustment for the size of the seed, then the first aspect of canopy management can very often go wrong. And that is that you just plant far too many seeds per square meter and you have a crop that's too thick. When a crop's too thick, it starts to compete with itself for light. And when it competes with itself, then you're on this weakening of the stem base. So planting by seed number and 150 to 200 seeds a square meter has always worked particularly well. So beginning of the window, 150 in April through to 200 seeds a square meter. Obviously, you need to make sure that you've got good germination. And this year, some people have been testing their seed for fusarium. So making sure that you've got some idea of the vigour of the seed you're doing. But planting by seed number can be really useful for both wheat and barley and, of course, for canola. If you've then got the right starting point in terms of number of plants, the other thing that's very influential in canopy management is how much nitrogen sits in that profile of soil you've sown into in the autumn. How much nitrogen has it got the ability to generate between there and spring? The more fertile it is, the more that crop will thicken and tiller. The less nutrient it's got, the less it will produce or overproduce those tillers. So come the start of spring, just before the crop starts to elongate, is a really great time to be assessing, do you need that nitrogen coming into the crop at that stage? Because canopy management is about actually looking at the canopy and saying, I think that looks about right. I'll give it a small dose, it's tillering, or that canopy is too thick. The last thing it needs is nitrogen. So making that adjustment in early spring before the crop goes for goal can be quite important to recognise whether you're going to have a flat canopy at the end of the day or a canopy that's standing. So nutrition, germplasm, plant population, all part of keeping that crop standing. And then the last resort of all being plant growth regulation. If you didn't get any of those right or don't feel you got any of those right, then you've got these products, plant growth regulators, that have an ability to shorten and stiffen the straw. And that then is that last resort. Sometimes you see people think it's the first resort, but it's actually just like fungicides are the last resort. The fertility of the situation, the variety you plant, how thickly you plant it, all being the starting points to getting canopy management right. There's tools there, but the thing that we all have that's different is different fertilities in different paddocks. On the fertility, Nick, can you tell me a little bit about how 
stating rates and fertility or nutrition can impact your responses in the cereal and canola. So what, what have you seen in the HYSA? What we've actually seen, Meg, is, is some results that surprised us. And that is that we know that high-yielding crops of either cereals or canola can use a lot of nutrition. What has surprised us is that if we supply that nutrition that at the end of the year we know they take out, we can't always get those crops to respond to the same amount of nutrition going in. So in other words, we seem to have the best scenarios for creating high yielding crops are actually those scenarios where we've got a good farming rotation that's got a good inherent fertility to it. Because we can't seemingly apply all of that nutrition out of a bag, for want of a better description. And so the ideal scenarios for growing high-yielding crops are where if the soil gets wet and warm, it provides that nutrition to supplement our fertilizer doses. And those fertilizer doses don't have to be over the top to create high yields. But what you do need is a good body of soil that will provide that nutrition as and when the crop needs it in those higher yielding years. Inevitably, Meg, that means that we're mining our soils if we don't put as much on because those crops don't respond to it as we know they're taking out, then in some instances, what it means is we're just mining the soil of its nutrition. So I think the debate going forward is how do we run balanced rotations with hyper yielding crops in them? What are the other things that we need to consider. And I think that's where the segue is into projects like the grain legumes, is to say, how can we make legumes pay sufficiently to actually give the nutrition that we need in the soil without it necessarily being out of the bag in that year? So, Canopy management is about trying to recognise when you've got that fertility and therefore not to pull all of your nutrition levers too early. And when you haven't got that fertility and you do need to pull your nutrition levers earlier. You've talked a little bit about the difference in last year compared to 2020 and 2021. Yeah. Can you talk a bit more specifically about about those those differences? What's what happened last year that was so different from the previous years? And are you expecting the same or something different again this year? Well, definitely, definitely taking the last bit first. I think we already know that twenty three is going to be different to twenty two. We we have been either fortunate or unfortunate, whichever way you want to look at it, to say that. The three years that we've run hyper-yielding crops so far have been what one would generally say, well, the heat of the spring's not been excessive. The rainfall has been adequate and then over the top in 2022. So 2023, I suppose one of the things we're looking to see is how some of our rules of thumb that we've developed actually work out in what is potentially maybe that season that's that little bit more average or drier than what we've experienced. So I suppose that's the first thing. In terms of what's different was different in 22 to 21 and 2020, like I say, the principal thing that we've noticed is that this aspect of solar radiation and recognising that we're more limited perhaps than we thought by solar radiation. And I'm talking of the, the lower southeast. I recognise that as you go further north, this may not be 
uh, consideration. But in those long season high rainfall zones, I think we can say that one thing we've learned from HYC is, gee, we're a lot more limited by sunlight than we ever imagined previously. We've always known that waterlogging was an issue for us, but we didn't realise sometimes that the weather that conveyed that waterlogging also meant we were missing out on setting up higher yield potential. And that's what the comparison between 21 and 22 has helped us understand far more. And there's a specific example that fascinated me. And that was that the, I mentioned about the highest yield in hyperyielding crops was achieved in Millicent in 2021. It was actually achieved with a UK variety. Now, UK varieties are usually too long a season for us to use their full strength, for want of a better description, on the mainland. We can get away with it in Tasmania, but not usually on the mainland. And in 2021, this particular variety, and it's a variety called Reflection, a feed red wheat, produced the highest yields, 12.74 tonnes a hectare. And this isn't a, a quadrant. This is a fully machine harvested plot. When you looked at the grain, we actually had the smallest grain in that trial from that variety that yielded the highest. And you say, well, I don't get it. Why would the smallest grain be the highest yielding? And we believe that the reason is that it's set in its critical period before flowering. It was the one variety that flowered so much later than all of the others. that It had an almost perfect run of its critical period, those three to four weeks before flowering. That It set up so many grain sites that it normally wouldn't finish them. They would go out the back of the header as small grain that you wouldn't even recognize. Mm. But in 2021, a great critical period was then followed by a very, very cool grain fill period that allowed a variety that doesn't normally perform to produce the highest yield we've ever seen in that scenario. And you could look at it and it had 8% screenings compared to Annapurna on about 1.5. So we knew that to have achieved that high yield from a similar number of heads, there was nothing extraordinary in the number of heads. We know that it must have set many more grains per head. And we know that that's a critical factor when it comes to producing high yield. Some great insights through this comparison of 21 and 22. Nick, tell us a bit about how the Millicent cereal and canola results compare to other regions. I think we, we all like to think we're living in, in the best area. You still hold the record, Meg, if I can call it, for <laughs> I think highest canola yields. I'm pretty sure that we're up there. It may be a toss-up between Wallenbean and Millicent, but over six tonne a hectare, which is phenomenal. And that was out of the Clearfield 93s and 95s last year. I think in comparison to those other regions, yes, we'll always be higher yielding than, say, WA, because it has a much shorter season, even in the high rainfall zone. I think that the comparison to Tasmania is we're never going to compete with Tasmania. It's got a cooler, longer season again, and it's unlikely that we're ever going to get those. Well, I've got to be careful, am I, saying, well, we won't get those 15-ton crops, but I think it's highly unlikely that we'll crack 15-ton. We might crack 12 or 13, and in fact, at 1274 and 12.5, we had two varieties just behind that English variety at 12.5. So I think pretty up there. We won't compete with Tassie, but the interesting one 
has been the comparison between Millicent and Wallenbean in New South Wales. And in Wallenbean, you've got 500 metres of altitude that give you the coolness, for want of a better description, which you clearly don't have at Millicent. But you've got that bit further south and coastal, which gives you that protection, not, not complete protection, but some protection against frost where you're coastal. And what we found is actually the most consistent site over the three years has actually been Wallenbean at high altitude. Probably up on those hills, two things stand out. The, the first, I've already mentioned, the fact that it is cooler. That means that they've been able to engage with some of the germplasm that we can engage with further south. The other aspect, though, is that there we're running a cropping phase with our host farmer that has a six-year pasture legume phase. And we know that that fertility that's coming out of there is a prerequisite to why we can make good use of that altitude for high-yielding crops with the right germplasm. So that site, it just over 11 tonne a hectare, has actually been consistently the highest yielding on the mainland. But Millicent has out-yielded it, but then 22 really pulled our three-year mean down. But both sites have probably produced our highest yielding canola over that three-year period. It's been great for us to send pictures backwards and forwards with Rowan he can't understand how, you know, like, well, he does understand, obviously, but when you send pictures of a May-sown canola, which anywhere else in Australia seems an anathema, you know, you've got to drill or sow canola in April. When you send pictures of Millicent crops sown in May, they are actually further ahead than those Wallenbean crops sown in early April you realise just how fascinating some of these high-yielding environments are and that you don't get there by the same means. The interesting thing, I think, from talking to you today, Nick, that I've started thinking about a bit more is that each of those high-yielding areas or those high-rainfall zone areas are really unique in their own environment, aren't they, and how the weather patterns emerge and the amount of sunlight and the amount of rain and all those sorts of things and the timing of the rain too. Yes, indeed. And that's what makes it fun doing that research there. I, I think the other thing, though, that we can say is that when you get a season like 2022 or go back to 2016 as a, a similar but not totally similar season, is that what we're learning within the HRZ can start to be applicable to the MRZ and the, the low rainfall zones, because some of those learnings start to apply to those crops further north when you have a season like we've had in 2022. And that's a real important part of this aspect of closing the yield gap. We can't do anything about those really dry seasons, but when we get seasons with higher potential in the medium and low rainfall zone areas, what we need is the thoughts on how our agronomy needs to change to capture that higher yield potential. And so I think going forward, that's a key aspect of the learnings from something that you might think isn't relevant to the main grain belt. You've talked a little bit about crop rotation and particularly that legume phase. Can you tell us a little bit about what are some of the key agronomic drivers that growers should be considering for lifting their productivity of their cereal crops? I think in terms of the rotational ones is to have a knowledge of what you're removing from the system. If we're going to run our cropping system rotations, we need to think of either restorative phases and in your own particular region, obviously, sometimes livestock and mixed farming provides opportunities to put back 
into the system, those manures or those crops that we are associate with the livestock, putting those back in the system, things like lucerne, back in the system to try and give us balance and fertility for a new cropping phase. If we haven't got that, then thinking about how we can develop that fertility. And I think right now there's some really interesting concepts out there in terms of can we bank nutrients when they're less expensive? Does that work in the high rainfall zone or will we just lose that nitrogen? Or can we actually seriously make use of fertilizers that were perhaps in excess in years previous? I think, though, that those with cropping phases, what we desperately need is we need grain legumes and we need grain legumes or perhaps even brown manures that actually give us something back that we can depend on. And like I say, the reason for it is we want a soil and a rotation that when we plant crops in them, if the weather gives us a kick up, rainfall and warmth, we want that soil to instantly be able to respond without it all being based on fertilizer nutrients providing that. So in what we can learn, looking for rotations that enable us to think about putting something back in, and that's more difficult if we're not in a mixed farming scenario with crop going back into that restorative phase, as I described it, but where we are cropping, thinking about making sure that we're mindful of how much we're taking out versus putting in. And like I say, high yielding crops we've found just, they want to mine the nutrients out sometimes and we can't stop them doing it because they don't always respond positively economically to more and more bag fertilizer. A couple of things to think about within your rotation. And I know that speaking to growers in your region, that they're saying, well, can't sell our grain legumes or it don't seem to have the price or the market's not there. And it, it is so frustrating for all growers who want to be seen to be putting something back in but then have to accept that actually, at the end of the day, those crop options aren't viable. One thing I would say is to make sure that you take enough account of what I call the legacy effects. If the crop is not perhaps the most profitable, making sure it covers its cost, because there's always that legacy effect for the following crop that I think sometimes can be overlooked. Nick, just wondering about the economics of these high-yielding crops. How do they compare in terms of gross margin to other crops in other areas of Australia? Or, you know, we're obviously talking about our legume phase and sometimes those gross margins in those legume paddocks or in those legume phase years might not be quite as high as we would like. How do we look at that in terms of farm? profitability i think it's real important to recognize that i wouldn't say outside of the disease management aspect of growing hyper yielding crops that they're high input cost crops i think because we can't seemingly and okay, if you're only applying, say, 50 or 70 kilos of nitrogen, um, nitrogen, not urea, a hectare, then clearly hyper yielding crops have probably, I think, got requirements that sit more in that 150 kilos of N to 200. That clearly is an increase in, in, in costs. But generally speaking, Going higher than that, we haven't seen that. So if the basis of the, your question is, do these higher input costs pay for these higher yielding crops? The answer is very much they do, 
but I challenge that it's actually, yes, it's more intensive agronomy. I see the rewards as being so much greater than what one could conceivably do with those inputs in a more arid environment. So in other words, even with, I think, relatively modest input costs, hyper-yielding crops compete very strongly with margins that you would find elsewhere. And one of the things that we aspired to do within hyper-yielding crops was to start to look at it in the realms of a sequence of crops, which to this point in time, we've been unable to do. So in other words, we can tell you the rotation positions that most lend themselves to those crops. What we've not been able to do is to run the kind of cropping sequence or hyper-yielding farming rotations experiment that we would like to. And those go to the heart of your question a little. But in terms of do those inputs pay in those crops that we've been growing, the answer is very much yes. But with the right germplasm, you'd be surprised at what you can grow without multiple fungicides. Just that it's very important that we keep identifying the new germplasm that gives us that opportunity. Because varieties, just as we've seen with a croc, slip over time as the pathogen tunes into them. Nick, we're kind of coming to the end of the of this round of funding or this this project for the high yielding crops trial site, and we've got one more year of trials left in each of the locations. Do you think you can be so bold as to project or or summarise what the key learnings have been, you know, to this point for the high yielding crops project as a whole? First of all, the joined up nature of the project research, focal point of big events, smaller innovation groups of farmers saying what they make of it, scaling it up, the awards. The first success is that linkage all the way through. I think the principal aspect, though, is to say we believe that for the same solar radiation and temperatures during the critical period. We've now evidence from 2016 when we started in Tassie to the present time that we have lifted productivity in the zone with the use of new germplasm, new chemistry and fungicide management and recognition of how to grow high yielding canopies that we've lifted productivity in those zones by two tonne a hectare. And I suppose for me, that would be what I would point to as the legacy from this project. And I would think going forward, our thrust should be how this fits into the rotation more widely, because we've clearly seen that that's a key part of achieving those yields. I think we also more technically see an inability of some of our crop models to be able to accurately predict such high yields so that there's an updating process that's just about to begin on modelling this, and I see us getting a greater understanding, more focus on exactly how these higher yields are made up so that that can better inform models. And you might say, well, why is that important? For us, it's really important to know what our yield gap is across our region. And unless we've got an accurate way to say the yield potential is X, we never know what that yield gap is going to be. Going forward, looking at it within the context of the rotations, the kind of serious aspects of how we're going to farm in a lower emissions economy, 
how's that going to affect these kind of approaches to growing crops combined with some of that yield gap and making sure that we perhaps spread the knowledge into the medium and low rainfall zones when it's appropriate, I see as big possibilities for the future development of this project, whatever it's called and whoever leads it. I think that's a really good place to wrap up, Nick. You've given a really great overview of the sites for this year and, and the last years and also where we're heading next year, which I think is, or in the future, which I think is a real priority for growers everywhere. Everybody wants to see research continued and research that's going to be beneficial to them continued. So thank you so much for being here with us today and sharing your immense knowledge. And we're looking forward to hearing more about the grain legumes in the next podcast with some of your colleagues. So thanks for being here. Well, thank you for your interest, Meg, and also just to thank the group for backing of this project through the innovation groups, through terrific project officer in terms of Jenny Lecrap. Uh, it's been a pleasure to work with the growers and advisors in the farming group in that lower southeast region. So thank you. Thanks, Nick. And today's episode was, of course, made possible with funding from GRDC through the High Yielding Crops and the Grain Legume Production Projects. Thanks for listening to The Prosperous Farmer, a McKillop Farm Management Group production. You can rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube at McKillop Group or check out our website at www.mckillopgroup.com.au. Thanks for listening and see you next time. <laughs>